0: Jonathan Mosen. Welcome to episode 61 of Mosen at Large. On the show today is the increasing use of QR codes going to create difficulty for blind people. A good Google accessibility story. More on staying organized in the kitchen and plenty of technology memories from way back.
1: Mosen at Large Podcast.
0: You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email, or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's eight six four six zero 60 mosin 864-606-6736, and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive, and please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast, and I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full and at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. In my part of the world, it is Father's Day, Sunday, the 6th of September, as I put this podcast together. If that's the case for you, I know that Father's Day and Mother's Day, for that matter, varies around the world. But happy Father's Day to you. If you are a dad, hope you're getting time with your family as I am today, at least part of my family who are close by. And certainly it's a time for us to appreciate our dads, why they're here. Sadly, mine died in 2017. I miss him every day, of course, but particularly on Father's Day. Now, we had a long and interesting discussion today on the Mosin at Large full show on Mushroom FM about audiobooks. We got a tremendous amount of listener feedback, and we spoke with a couple of people about Libro.fm. This is the service that gives you what they call uncaged audiobooks because they are completely free of digital rights management. They're available in plain old mp 3 there's over 150,000 titles in there. Quite a selection. And because of the length of all of that, we've got well over an hour of material on that subject alone. We are going to do another Mosin at Large midweek special for podcast listeners. Of course, this has already aired live on Mushroom FM. But so as we don't exclude too much other good material that we got, yes, our cup runneth over, we'll publish again on Wednesday with Libro FM and also people's thoughts from around the world on audiobooks so join us for another midweek special on mosen at large specifically on that subject that will come out as episode 62 on wednesday u.s time that'll be 6 a.m in new zealand on thursday
2: hi jonathan tyrone from new york do you know anything about the orbit writer the thing for the iPhone with the Orbit Reader.
0: Good to hear from you, Tyrone. Hope all's well over there. I know that it is shipped now because I'm seeing people on Twitter saying that they have theirs. For those not familiar with this product, the Orbit Writer is not the first product like this. I think quite a long time ago now. Humanware, possibly even Visuate, before they merged to become part of Humanware, ...had a little braille keyboard that you could enter text on... ...and it was Bluetooth. And essentially that's what the Orbit Writer is. It's a Perkins-style keyboard. No braille display. I think it's about $99 from memory. And you just braille into it. I have not heard too much feedback... ...about how well it performs... ...what it feels like to braille on... ...or anything like that. So if you have an Orbit Writer... ...now that it has shipped and you'd like to tell us how it's working out for you, then please feel free. I know many of us, including me and Tyrone, would be most interested in hearing about your experiences. And the power of the mighty Mosin at Large audience, eh? Because Sandy Finley is already in touch on the subject of the Orbit writer and says, I have one and am very happy with it. It is about the same size as my iPhone 8, and yes, it is possible to write in contracted Braille with an uppercase B. There is somewhat of a learning curve because there are haptics used to indicate important items, such as level of battery charge. I am impressed with Orbit research. There have already been three software upgrades. I believe they are listening to their customers. The Orbit writer is not for everyone, but for those of us who are dedicated Braille users and dislike typing on the iPhone screen, it is a great, relatively low-cost
3: Alternative. Hello Jonathan, it's Thomas Upton, and I'm here to talk about on what some people hate sometimes, and that is CAPTCHA. And my reason for this is well, I'm about to tell you a little story. I remember I emailed you one time to indicate you that the Twitter notifications on what Mushroom FM shows coming up next, has gone down once again, and you told me that that's not correct. And I checked the Twitter app, and when I opened it up, it gave me a message that appeared on the screen saying that I have to take a CAPTCHA challenge to protect uh, some privacy, I think. And I clicked start, and I did my best to solve the CAPTCHA. And... I picked the audio challenge, and I listened, and sometimes, for some of these challenges, you might not be able to hear what some of these words are because of, like, background music or something. Like, I remember the ones I took, you would first hear, on some challenges, a static sound followed by a snippet of audio, which all these audio snippets are words you have to enter. And after you hear that snippet, it'll play another static to indicate the end of the words. And I tried solving them as best as I could. I, I entered them correctly and I hit the verify button. And within less than a minute, it said verification has expired. Check the checkbox to try again. And I tried again a couple more times And I got a message that says your computer is sending automated stuff so we're unable to do your request. And that leads me to this question. How many do you all hate CAPTCHA? Like I hate CAPTCHA and I think you, Jonathan, hate CAPTCHA. Just how many all of you do you hate CAPTCHA? Because I know that just, well, unfortunately, that's what you got to do to tell that you're not a robot. Some sites do this because you really don't want to be a computer. You want to be a real human. It is frustrating
0: to be at the receiving end of this, isn't it? As somebody who has created websites and been spammed, I do have some sympathy with the objectives. But implemented well, capture can be okay. For example, with the Google capture, if you're signed in, I believe the two things that must be true, and I'm happy to be corrected on this because I'm not certain. I think the two things that must be true are that if you are signed into a Google account and you have two-factor authentication enabled, when a screen reader is detected on a page that has the Google Capture, there's a simple checkbox which says, I am not a robot, and you check that box, and it comes back, and it says you are verified which is fantastic. Sadly, not everybody uses Google Capture. And as somebody with a hearing impairment, I certainly find those ones where you have to try and get the audio challenge very difficult at times. One thing that you can try, and this makes a difference on some sites, I don't know whether Twitter is one such site, is making sure that you log in and enable two-factor authentication. For those not familiar, two-factor authentication requires something you know, a password, although hopefully you don't know it, it's stored away in a password manager like 1Password, and it is unique to every site that you visit, and something that you have, usually your smartphone. And you can use apps like the Microsoft Authenticator or Google Authenticator to get a code, or you can have a code texted to you. And when two-factor authentication is enabled on your account sometimes some of these places are a little less rigorous about requiring the capture so that's worth a try twitter has i think acknowledged that they really could do better in some areas of accessibility and i've read in the last few weeks they are actively recruiting accessibility professionals to try and lift their game there so i hope you got the capture resolved it is frustrating and there are various tools one of the things i do miss about firefox was webvism somebody brought this up two or three weeks ago, which was a wonderful tool for solving all kinds of capture. And sadly, that has gone. But perhaps people can talk about other tools that they know. I know there was another one that I used a few years ago and it worked on the Mac, and it worked on various other places, and I'm struggling to remember what the name of that service was. It performed a similar function to WebVism. Essentially, you got the capture in the view, you hit a button, you waited a wee while, and voom voom, the capture was filled into the edit field. So, yes, it is frustrating. Maybe somebody can tell us about experiences they've had that have helped with capture resolution or capture avoidance as well.
4: Jonathan Mosin
0: at Large Podcast. Here's a familiar name, Adam Gaffney from sunny Florida. Hi, Adam. He says, Hi, Jonathan. I look forward to the M at L cast. And he's got the M and the at sign and an L cast each week. That's interesting. I write M A L P when I'm abbreviating it in the file name. So, Mosen at Large Podcast. But that's another way of doing it. I have a few audio related questions to pose, says Adam. Can you recommend a good, accessible CD ripping package? I use an older version of Easy CD Extractor, but since the FreeDB Music database has gone down, I'm not able to get album info for CDs I wish to rip. Am I the only old-school dude, dude, who still builds a local audio collection? I am an Apple Music subscriber, but the reason for that is is as a tool for finding new music to add to my own collection. I find some limitations in playing music via voice commands with Siri or the Soup (laughs) Gargler. For example, there are two jazz musicians named Bill Evans. One plays piano and the other saxophone. Using voice commands, I have not figured out how to play music by the saxophonist Bill Evans. Finally, is there any news you know about related to the 6.0 version of Winamp? Yes, I'm still using 5.6.6. Very nice to hear from you, Adam. Hope all's going well for you. Let me go backwards. No, I have not heard anything for a while now about Winamp version 6, but I'm totally chill about that, man, because as long as I keep my install file of this here version of Winamp that I've got, and as long as it keeps working, and I have no reason to believe it will stop working, then it just meets my needs and it works and I'm content. I'm content with what I have. Now, regarding ripping, probably the best way to rip CDs these days from Windows, in my view, would just be to bite the bullet, install iTunes and get it done that way. Yes, I know that iTunes is a bloated piece of soup, but the reality is you can configure it so that you just feed it CDs, it automatically rips in your format of choice, spits the CD out at the end of the process and and you've got a good, solid, reliable rip with good metadata, and it's done. You don't even really have to play with the iTunes UI once you've set it up the way you want. If you'd rather not install iTunes, then I believe another alternative could be that the people who make Switch sound file converter NCH software also do a ripping program, which I hear good things about. So there's another option. Don't know whether CDEX is still around or not, but if you have any ideas for Adam about good CD audio rippers, be in touch. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com on the email with an audio attachment, or just write something down, or give us a call. eight six four six zero Mosin. That's eight six four six zero six six seven three six. On the subject of rippers, you little ripper. Luis has answered the question about DVD rippers that Thomas posed last week. He says a couple of suggestions for inquiries put forth in today's podcast. He was right on the ball. One, for a DVD ripper, I recommend Free Video Converter. This software is totally accessible and it allows the user to rip DVDs into audio or video files, MP3 and MP4, among other formats Luis hasn't given me the URL, but I presume if you just Google on that, hopefully you'll be able to find it and that there won't be too many products called that. Two, two, says Luis. Regarding video editing software, Total Recorder is also suitable for this purpose, and it is pretty accessible. However, as you pointed out, editing video for a blind person is quite tricky. Email from Anya. I'm pretty sure I have that correct, but you would not believe how my text-to-speech engine is mangling that name, but I'm sure it's Anya, and she says, Hi, Jonathan. I'm enjoying your podcast. Thank you. I wondered if you or any of your listeners might share experience as managing email newsletter-type software, MailChimp-like programs. When I have worked on campaigns run off NationBuilder in the past, the number of unlabeled buttons on the inside was pretty overwhelming. So having someone else paste the email content into the template and send it was a good, easy solution, but would be cool to know what other clients people have used and how they found them. I had a very quick look at Action Network maybe a year ago, and that looked pretty friendly. But Nation Builder and Action Network are also both the kind of platform you might use for quite a lot more than sending a database some email and segmentation. Thanks, Anya. She asks if this has come up before. No, we have not discussed this on the podcast before, and it's a good topic. I'd like to know if anybody's cracked this one as well. We do have blind people listening who are running small businesses or involved in mail campaigns. I had a look at MailChimp some years ago when I was running my own business and rapidly concluded that I would just set up a good old mailman announcement-only email list, which is a really crude instrument. I mean, it's very simplistic. You miss out on a lot doing it that way. And if you get familiar with some of these tools where you can target your campaigns, you can measure how many people open the emails, you know, I've used them at various other places that I've worked But I have not actually operated them So if anyone has experience with MailChimp Or any marketing tool Any communication tool Where you can really get into the weeds And do that nitty gritty stuff Do let us know I think that would be useful to know about How good is MailChimp these days Are there MailChimp alternatives That are fully accessible
1: Jonathan Mosin Mosin at large pie.
0: Andre is in touch again, and he says, Hi, Jonathan, probably I'll be too technical here. Ah, never, never. You can never be too technical for this show, I tell you. <laughs> he says, but as this topic is directly related both to your podcast and to accessibility, I'd like to ask for your opinion and maybe raise a discussion. As far as I could notice, you use WordPress at mozen.org. Recently, I've updated WordPress on one of my websites, jumping straight from 4 point something to 5.5, and I was completely disappointed with the new Gutenberg editor. I know that it got more accessible with time, but still, the experience is far from being convenient. My question is, what do you use to produce show notes to your podcast? I know you love Markdown, so do you transfer your Markdown posts to WordPress somehow Or maybe, does Pinecast post something for you automagically? It's not a typo, but one of my favorite words in IT. I listened to your awesome overview of different podcast hosting providers, and it's a must for everyone who is interested in producing a podcast. Didn't you conduct such research for WordPress alternatives you might possibly migrate to? Thanks, Andre. Good to hear from you. The good news is that this is really easily fixed. You can just install the WordPress Classic Editor. It is a plugin available from the WordPress plugin store in the usual way. And then you can go into settings and make the WordPress Classic Editor your default. It could be that Gutenberg has gotten better over time. But to be honest, this is not my main job anymore. I have a day job and I just need to get things done. So I've become a bit of a creature of habit. The WordPress classic editor does everything I need it to. I know it well. I know it like the back of my hand. I know all the keyboard shortcuts I need. It just works. So I was very glad to reinstall it, enable it as my default editor, and that resolved the issue for me. Although when I'm doing my show notes, I actually do write them in Markdown and put them in Pinecast's editor which is available when you publish a new episode. And then I have a plugin that Pinecast produces, which automatically posts it over on mozen.org. So I don't use the WordPress editor too often, actually, because I can post blog posts in Ulysses or write them in Word and paste them in. There are easy ways to post via email. So there are lots of things. But yeah, get the classic editor back, mate. You will be happier for it. Hi,
5: Jonathan. I am going to talk about my Google Accessibility Support Experience. On the 3rd of August 2019, I contacted Google's Accessibility Support Team through Be My Eyes to report an issue where I could not able to post YouTube comments on YouTube for Android app while Google Talkback running or Samsung Voice Assistant running. Because when I enter a comment more than one word, sometimes more than one line, the send button was disappearing. The agent who attended my call was able to confirm that issue and asked if I want an email of that issue and the escalation process. I said yes and immediately I got an email from that agent and it mentioned in the email that the issue which I was reported and it is currently escalated to higher authority. Then after one year, four days, on the 7th of August 2020, I got another email from Google because it is not a primary account for me. I'll just use for using YouTube and like stuff like that. I generally do not check emails in that account. So I checked on maybe 10th or 11th of August. I was a bit surprised to find that email from Google. When I opened the person mentioned that your problem has been resolved and he also mentioned the agent name from whom the issue was reported by me. So, I checked my mobile and the YouTube app was working fine and I was able to post comments. So, I replied to the person confirming the same. I got another reply from same guy he said that if you have any other questions don't hesitate to ask so after that conversation ends my experience was very mixed because it took one year four days to google to push out that youtube app update then the positive side of this is the agent who attended my call she was very very friendly very helpful very enthusiastic to be precise and afterwards the agent who resolved that issue and reported me he was very kind and generous person from this i am getting a feeling that google accessibility team was a very good team and capable team who are running that department but the senior management who are taking or should i say a developer team leader for for google they should prioritize these people and fix those accessibility bugs in, by while interacting with this team, I felt like I am not abandoned, and I am taking a. I was taken a very good care.
0: I'm really glad you took the time to share that experience with us, Anil, because it's nice to have a positive support story to share. And that sounds like outstanding service that they were able to identify the bug and turn it around so quickly. And not only have you benefited from that but so have all others who want to use that particular feature. So that is great. And I think there is a general consensus, perhaps not everybody agrees, but a general consensus that Google has been a little slow in terms of screen reader accessibility. They do seem to be making some real progress now with the implementation of MultiTouch in Android 11. It would be good to see some more attention paid to Braille and some Braille support that uh, is robust built into TalkBack itself rather than the kind of Braille back being bolted on. I think there is a real potential for Google to get the Braille market at the moment because Apple, despite numerous efforts and changes and attempts, have never really got contracted Braille input right in iOS. It's pretty idiosyncratic. So yes, if they were to devote a few more resources to it, I think there's potential here, particularly as the quality control issues persist with Apple. But that's a very encouraging experience that you had. On the subject of Braille magazines we've known and loved, Caroline Taves says, I remember expectations very well. I liked it for the scratch and sniff stickers at first, but would try to read it before I really knew what I was reading. I'll never forget the day, though, When I was reading a story and kind of had my aha moment when Braille, with a lowercase B, reading finally clicked with me. I haven't stopped reading since. The day I read an entire story by myself in Braille was one of the most amazing experiences ever. I'll always remember expectations for that reason. Chris Cook is in touch from the UK once again, and he alerted me to a very weird anomaly at the end of episode 59. So thank you, Chris. I fixed up the media file and re-uploaded it. So anybody who's got the original with the weird anomaly, you have a collector's item because it's not on the interwebs no more. Now, Chris is looking for advice, and since he did me that good turn of alerting me to that weird media file anomaly, I'll gladly help if I can for only twice my normal fee. He says, I wonder if you and your listeners can help slash advise me on something, please. For over a year now, I've been trying to bring what I perceive to be an accessibility issue on the Amazon website to their attention, but as yet without any success. Coincidentally, the same issue cropped up a few years ago, and I reported it in the same way as I've done this time, and it eventually got fixed. This was at the time when Larry Derrack, was working in their accessibility team, which I don't think he is anymore, sadly. He once featured on a Freedom Scientific training webinar with Ryan Jones on how to shop on the Amazon website. Anyway, the issue, although small in nature, is as follows. It applies to the amazon.co.uk website, but I'm assuming that it will be the same on their other sites. When you purchase something from a third-party seller, On the Amazon Marketplace, once you've received your goods and are happy with them, you have the chance to rate the seller and leave them some feedback about their performance. This process has two parts to it. The first part is giving the seller a rating from 1 to 5 stars, according to their performance, and this part has once again become inaccessible. There used to be five radio buttons, one for each rating from 1 to 5 stars. It was very easy to select the star rating you wanted and to move on to complete the rest of the form. If you don't select a star rating, you're unable to submit the feedback form regardless of whether you've completed the rest of it or not. The five radio buttons have since been replaced by what a friend of mine describes as a roll bar, which you have to drag your mouse pointer across to select the star rating you want. JAWS reads this out and as X button and I've tried to activate this by routing the JAWS cursor to the virtual PC cursor but just can't interact with the control. I first reported this issue to accessibility at amazon.com in July 2019 and explained the problem and said that a similar thing had happened a few years previously and it had eventually been fixed by the reinstatement of the radio buttons. I had an initial acknowledgement from the accessibility team after first contacting them, but have heard nothing since, in spite of two further emails at roughly six monthly intervals, inquiring as to whether any progress has been made in rectifying this seemingly simple issue. I also sent a copy of my email directly to Larry Dara's email address at Amazon, but it bounced straight back again. I know this is only one tiny function on a large website and doesn't affect screen reader users from making purchases, even from the marketplace. I know, though, how much marketplace sellers rely on customer feedback and I even get reminder emails from Amazon to leave feedback following my purchases. eBay also has a similar function, but there it works both ways. You can rate your buyer slash seller and vice versa. I've also tried raising this with executive customer services at Amazon here in the UK and got an email response a day or two later with instructions as to how to leave marketplace feedback, which wasn't, of course, the point I was trying to raise. Is there anyone in your extensive networks of people slash contact slash IT experts plus Jonathan who may be able to take this matter further? and ensure that the team responsible for this at Amazon are made aware of this issue to see whether it can be resolved once again. Are any other Mosin at large listeners in the UK or in other countries having similar issues? Any help slash advice would be gratefully received as I can't seem to progress this issue myself Any further at the moment? Thanks so much for your email, Chris. Sadly, neither can I. I have reached out to a couple of contacts at Amazon. Haven't heard anything back. So I guess all I can suggest is that you keep trying the accessibility address. It'll be interesting to see if anybody else can duplicate your issue.
6: Hey, Jonathan, this is Chris Gilland from Lancaster, South Carolina, First of all, I wanted to start by saying how much I enjoy listening to your Mosin at Large podcast. I just recently started listening, and it is absolutely just incredible. Uh, You are such a great presenter and probably one of my top favorite podcasts to listen to. I had a bit of a question regarding the creation of podcasts. I don't know that this is anything that you have ever discussed, honestly, But it would be very interesting to hear your thoughts on this. So I'm trying to create a podcast through a podcast host of my choice. And essentially, I want to then distribute that podcast to all the places that distribute podcasts out to different directories like iTunes, Spotify, etc. The problem is, is that some of these providers require one very specific thing, and that is that in order for your podcast to be approved and put in those directories, they need to have podcast artwork. Well, obviously, as a blind individual, how are you going to do that? How are you going to create artwork if you can't see to use something like Photoshop or Aperture or something of the sort? Is there a way A blind person, short of using TeamViewer with some service like Ira or whatever to just do it for you, is there a way that you can create your own artwork as a blind individual? I know about services like Fiber that could do it for you as well, but I'm speaking of doing this yourself with no fee whatsoever.
0: Well, Chris, thank you very much for your kind words about the podcast. I'm glad that you found it and that you are enjoying it. I'm not saying there isn't a way but I haven't tried this. I like to leave these things to the experts and as somebody who's been totally blind since birth I am no expert in this stuff so I hand it on. It is important to me that anything that represents my brand is well produced and since I can't really monitor anything visually I give it to someone I trust. Now in my case My son, Richard's partner, Nadia, she is a graphic designer. She has a degree, in fact, in graphic design. And when I was operating Mosin Consulting and we would design some websites that were very complex for some people, complete with e-commerce and the whole shebang, we would also do the graphics. And so we kept it in the family and Nadia would do the graphic design. So whenever I start a new podcast, like, for example, Mosin at Large, I say to Nadia, "Here's what the podcast is about. Here's the kind of flavour of the podcast, if you will, the the character that we're going for in the podcast." And she will come up with usually three logos, and she'll describe them to me in great detail. And then I will consult. I'll give it to a few people whose opinions I trust, and say, "Here are three logos. What do you think looks the best?" And they will tell me, "I think this is the best," and here's why I think so. And finally. I will pick a logo. And as you rightly allude to, there are services out there that will design podcast logos for you. If it were me, I would definitely pay that small consideration to have a logo that doesn't look stupid. (laughs) It's really important to me that it looks professional and I have every confidence in the Mosin-at-Large logo because it's been done by somebody competent in the field. But if you are a blind person and you have dabbled in doing your own artwork, Then let us know how you did it, what your methodology is, and how well it works, what sort of feedback you get. Daniel writes, hi Jonathan, I heard your story on the show about your backpack. Glad you got it back. Oh, me too, mate, me too. It also reminded me, he says, of something rather scary that happened to me. Are you ready? Here we go. Oh, this sounds like quite a story. Can we find some music? I just talked to the production crew here. Can can we find some music to go with this? Ah, thank you, thank you. A few years ago, I was at a summer camp in Chicago, and I had my Victorita stream with me. On the last day as I was leaving, I thought I packed my Victorita stream in my bag to go home with, and when I got home, it was not there. Okay, I thought, now what? I had gone to a concert that night with my family, thinking I had it. I was at home when I saw my stream was missing. I had my mom call the dorm. It wasn't there. I must have left it at the concert hall then. What's weird, though, is that it had my last name, Semro, on it as well as my high school district. Yet it still wasn't seen, nor was it returned. I am very thankful to my district, as they had a replacement stream for me, which I was able to keep despite losing my original. The bad part was I had to reload everything and I lost several Victor Reader notes. Where did the music go? What? It's only a 60-second bed because that's all we can afford. Well, I don't know. Anyway, uh, it was good while it lasted. I, I lost the Victor Reader notes from my piano lessons, which is also taken care of as they are all, thankfully, re-recorded. So it started bad, ended good. Moral of the story, says Daniel... Watch where you store your stream. You never know when you might lose it.
1: Jonathan Mosin. Mosin at Large
0: Podcast. Francisco Crespo says, As I consider getting a Focus 45th generation, I wonder if you use the Braille in feature to perform Windows commands or whether you prefer to use the QWERTY keyboard. If you choose to go back and forth between devices, do you locate them on the desk in any particular way so you can switch with minimal physical effort? I do use JAWS Braille in quite a bit for writing in Word documents, just with my Braille display and brailing away. I must admit that I just find the whole method of entering keys such as control and alt and shift and those sorts of things really cumbersome on the Focus devices. I did get used to it when I was using an L Braille a lot, when I had the first generation L Braille, because I was working for Freedom Scientific at the time, and I was producing a podcast, and so I got really immersed in it. So I think that like anything, if you use it often enough, it just becomes muscle memory. I guess it's just become so easy for me to reach out on my lovely mechanical keyboard. I have one at home and one at the office and press the key combinations, that I just haven't committed them to memory in the way that I might. I did have a little acronym at one point that helped me remember the order of the keys, but it still slows you down. So I do in principle like the Hims approach where they've got dedicated keys for control and shift and things of that nature, but I just cannot get on with where the space bar is placed on that device. So it will never live at Mosin Towers unless they move the space bar. This is one of the reasons why the Mantis is so appealing. I like the idea of a good quality Braille display that has a QWERTY keyboard and you don't have to remember those key combinations. But I wouldn't rule it out of hand. As I say, you can commit anything to memory. And if you use something day in, day out, it will eventually become second nature. In terms of where I put my Braille display, it sits directly in front of my keyboard so it's very close to me when I need to read, and I do read from Braille a lot. I write in Braille a little bit, but predominantly with my QWERTY keyboard, which rests behind the Braille display. Gary O'Donoghue writes, I was in the BA lounge at Heathrow yesterday, and in order to get food and drink, you had to scan a QR code on the table you were sat at from your camera app, which would then launch Safari and where you were supposed to be able to order stuff which they then would bring to your table. Sounds like the future, man. I think this is something that is happening quite widely now, particularly as places are trying to do away with paper and laminated menus to reduce virus risks. I found the label on the table with the QR code and was able to scan it, but the applet it launched wasn't really accessible. I could see some headings, etc., but couldn't work out how to expand the various categories. Double tapping seemed to do nothing. My question is whether these applets will pose a different and specific issue for VO users. Are they using some kind of pared-down browser experience that may not have the general support for accessibility? Anyone else had experience? Thanks, Gary. Good question. I haven't had any experience with this particular kind of user interface, but I think it also raises a wider question of the accessibility of QR codes in general. I've seen QR codes over the years. They seem to be really popular in some Asian countries, but certainly here in New Zealand, we have seen some at museums and places like that, attractions where you can scan the QR code and get more information. And, you know, QR codes are actually potentially very useful. But, I mean, they can have some real accessibility problems by virtue of the fact that they tend to be small and it can be difficult for a blind person to know where those QR codes are located. At the moment in New Zealand, we have a contact tracing system that is built on QR codes. So it's now the law that every business that you visit has to display a QR code And the idea is that you have the NZ COVID Tracer app on your system and that you scan the QR codes everywhere you go. And it keeps a digital diary on your device so that if contact tracers need to get in touch to find out where you've been, you can release that information. But it is a manual process. And of course, as I have been in the media here in New Zealand saying, it can be really hard for a blind person to know where those QR codes are physically located. So several issues pertaining to QR codes. If you have encountered QR codes in the world, how have you found them to work? Now, Bonnie, who is a pretty proficient BlindSquare user, tells me they have quite a good user interface to QR codes and that she uses them sometimes in BlindSquare. But, of course, that doesn't change the fact that if you've located the QR code somehow and you've done the scan and it takes you to somewhere inaccessible, that's not going to help. So we'll see what people come back with, Gary, on this whole question of QR codes and their use as a blind person.
7: Good morning, everyone. This is Petra. I have the uh, Digitize app on my phone, which I got uh, about five years ago, four years ago. It costs $10, I think. And it does a really good job of reading QR codes on packages. And oftentimes the The information with the QR code will tell you the ingredients and the cooking directions, which is very helpful. The uh, developer of Digitized recommended that when I go shopping, I take along some scotch tape clear and that the phone can read through the scotch tape and just have whoever is helping me put a little piece of scotch tape across the barcode. That way when I get home, I can feel where the barcode is to line up the phone and read it. So that, for me, was a kind of a low-tech, not very technically savvy way to do it because I use my iPhone SE second generation, (laughs) and before that, my iPhone SE, and I love them both.
0: Thanks, Petra. I haven't seen an update to digitize for quite a long time, but hopefully it is still a going concern, and the app still works, and the app is in the store, I think. So I guess all is good. Maybe it's just at a point where it doesn't need regular updating on the app side, because they can update their database remotely. And it is a good tool for identifying products. I wonder whether anybody's done a head-to-head comparison between say, Seeing AI, which is free, Digitize and Envision AI to determine which one recognizes the most barcodes. And I suspect it could vary from region to region. Of course, QR codes go much wider than that. And as I've mentioned, our contact tracing app here has QR codes and you have to run a specific app to scan those. There are also QR codes in museums, on public transport. I don't know whether it's such a big thing in the States, but QR codes are everywhere now. And as Gary mentioned, in the British Airways lounge. So I think we have got the product identification side of barcodes pretty well sussed these days. But these other QR codes, I think, are a bit of a concern right now. The developer of Digitize also gave me a really handy hint a while ago. I think it wasn't specifically to me. I might have seen it on a list that she was on. And she suggested that if you're having trouble recognizing a barcode or finding one, get a cheap magnifying glass, like the kind of stuff that kids use for science experiments, and hold the magnifying glass to the camera and it will amplify the barcode to make it easier to find and scan. That is such a cool trick. So the combination of the magnifying glass and the scotch tape, you'll be rocking the product codes. Jason Thompson is writing in on Accessible TV. He says, I was considering a new TV purchase for about a year before I heard your podcast on the Samsung TV you demonstrated on the podcast. I did purchase the 7 series instead of the 8 series, and it did have the voice guide and all the other accessibilities that you mentioned. I was able to set up the TV myself without any sighted help as a result of your hard work and fantastic audio skills. I am doing quite well with an over-the-air antenna. The strange thing is that to get audio description programming, I have to set my audio to Spanish. That audio description setting doesn't work. It's probably how things are broadcast in the United States. Once again, thank you very much. Terrific news, Jason. I'm glad you got the TV and that it's everything you hoped it would be. We used to have a situation like that in New Zealand, actually, when free to Wear TV started offering audio description, you had to set your language track on the TV to Italian and then Miraculosa the audio description would come right up. And it may well still be the case, potentially, but the firmware in TVs perhaps has been modified to know that that's what you have to do to get audio description. But certainly the audio description option does work here in New Zealand. But that's cool that you found the workaround and that you're getting your audio description over the air. Hope you have many happy years of service with it. Kevin Russell presents us with a conundrum, a conundrum. But first, he says, hi, Jonathan. First of all, I hope that you, Bonnie, and all the family are keeping well and staying safe in these difficult times Jacinda Ardern has been extremely impressive during the COVID-19 period, so you've definitely been in a good part of the world in terms of your government being sensible and being led by the science. Yes, imagine that. Mark Drakeford, the First Minister of Wales, is also extremely sensible and lucid. I'll say nothing at all regarding Boris Johnson. Dude! I don't often manage to listen to Mosin at Large live. What? But I love the podcast and never miss it. I wonder if you or any of your listeners can help with my iPhone issue. It was my 60th birthday on the 20th of August. Well, well done, Kevin. Happy birthday. And one of my lovely presents from all of my family was an iPhone SE 2020 edition. It's an absolutely lovely phone, and I'm so happy with it. Much faster than my iPhone 6S Plus, which it replaces. I really felt like I didn't actually need an iPhone 11 at the moment. The SE does everything I want from a phone at present. I decided to use the option of transferring everything from my old iPhone to my new iPhone, which I must say worked beautifully, except for one very annoying thing. I have some apps on my old iPhone which are no longer available on the App Store, so I'm unable to download them on my new iPhone. For instance, the Bossjock Studio app still works on my old iPhone, but my new phone will not let me download it as it's no longer available on the App Store, even though the pointer to the app was transferred. In the past, I would always use an encrypted iTunes backup to restore to a new phone because it would transfer all my apps, meaning if I was using a back-level version of an app, it would be transferred to my new phone My understanding is that now the current version of iTunes doesn't do this. It backs up any data relating to an app, but once an iTunes transfer is complete, the new device will then download the latest version of all apps to the new phone. If an app has been removed from the app store, you can no longer get it. Am I correct with this? I think in general, Apple software is excellent, but I do find this area very frustrating. I appreciate that the Boss Studio app is no longer sold and has been superseded, but I bought it and it still works. I should be able to transfer it to my new phone. Do you have any thoughts as to how I could transfer the apps no longer on the App Store from the old phone to the new phone? I'm very happy to purchase any Windows or iOS software to accomplish this. Thanks, Kevin. Your understanding is correct. They took apps away from iTunes, I guess, as a way to try and simplify what is a very bloated product. But it is very disappointing. And there are clear accessibility ramifications. For example, if you did take the trouble to take regular backups of your iPhone and then you downloaded an app that's really important to you, it got updated, you downloaded the update, and you found that the app was broken in terms of accessibility – You could go ahead and take that old version of the app that was accessible from your iTunes backup and bring it back. And you were saved. Saved. Now, as you rightly say, you can't do that. And it also has ramifications in exactly the way that you talk about. If a developer has taken the app away from the App Store, then there's really not a lot that you can do officially. Apple's response to this has typically been, well, you buy a license to use the app for as long as it's available When the app is no longer available, you keep it on the device you have, but you can no longer access it in the future. There is one way that I'm aware of around this, and that is to get a Windows app called iMazing. So it's spelled like amazing, but with an I at the beginning instead of an A. With iMazing, it will transfer the contents of your phone to your PC, and then you should be able to take the app... That you want, in this case Boss Jock Studio, and transfer it to the new phone, also using iMazing. Now, when I last looked at this, and it was a couple of years ago, it was quite a convoluted app. But even if you use Sighted Assistance of some kind, Ira or whatever, it'd be worth doing that if you got the app back that you really wanted. That said. I should put in a plea and say that Ed from Backpack Studio is doing some amazing work, particularly with accessibility as well as new features with the Backpack Studio app. And it may be cheaper for you to buy Backpack Studio and support a developer than it would be to buy iMazing. But that is, I believe, a way to do it. How accessible it is, I would be really interested to know If you attempt it, good luck. Matthew Whittaker's written in and he's pleased. He says, Did you see the update to the Backpack Studio app? They added keyboard shortcuts. I remember when listening to your podcast and demo of the app, you said that there should be keyboard shortcuts. This company is doing an amazing job. Not only have they added those, but they've also added Siri shortcuts and a few more features. I won't spoil any of them. You should do a podcast or feature the app on the live Mushroom FM show. We may get back to it, Matthew. I won't do it quite yet because there is a lot more to come. There's a really big feature being worked on at the moment that could be a bit of a game changer for some people who don't want to produce their podcasts in Windows. So we will get back uh, to Backpack Studio when that feature is ready to demo. Yes, I've been running the beta builds of Backpack Studio for quite some months with the shortcut features built in. And it's done a really fantastic job. He's responsive. He engages with our community. He is uh, the, the way we'd love all app developers to be. So it's great to see that this is finally in the App Store.
8: Hello, Jonathan and fellow Mosin at Large listeners. This is Larry from Louisville. I wanted to, uh, first of all, again, say what... A, what an interesting and, and great podcast. I really love hearing from all the different perspectives and uh, good, good stuff. Please keep up the good work. I think one of the most important things in the kitchen is organization. And uh, it's hard to organize effectively when your counter's all full of uh, stuff. And uh, you know I I think one of the keys is to be able to get what you need deal with it and then put it back up so that's um, one hand it's not really about gadgets or anything another thing especially uh, useful I think is actually using the sink part of your counter and what I mean by that is um, you know, instead of having to use something to see if your hot water is at the top of the cup, just put your cup in the sink and pour your boiling water into it. And who cares if it spills over the edge? You uh, put the, the pot back up and just tip the cup, you know, pour out what you don't want of the water and then add your tea bag to it. So just an, another different way to, um, to be able to deal with extremely uh, hot liquids like that. I mean, anytime I'm mixing pizza dough or anything, I'll, I'll put the bowl right in the sink. Of course, this assumes you've got your sink always cleaned out and organized. But one of the hardest things, I think, in the kitchen is is to keep all your materials organized so that you can get to them. All your tools, your cutting boards, your knives, Uh, Your spatulas, your pots and pans. And then worst of all is your ingredients. You know, if you can keep your spices labeled, and boy, don't get me started on labels, because I think one of the rights that we as blind people should be fighting for almost more than anything is to get some equity on package labeling. And this is a, a deep topic that many people have worked on for years and years, and and who knows, you know, really what the best way to do that is. In, in my humble opinion, we don't want the whole can or box marked up with everything that's in print. You know, I, I just I think just something like cornflakes embossed on the box, or tomato soup on the can, not. Campbell's uh, oregano tomato soup. I mean, you know, when you're in the store, that's the time to pick out which brand of cornflakes you want or which brand of uh, tomato soup. But when you're in the kitchen, you you already know that. You just need to identify, oh, this is the mustard. This is is the uh, horseradish. You know, I know that uh, Procter & Gamble has taken some stabs at this, and there are some companies that have labeled some hair products Uh, actually with braille and i know procter and gamble took a different approach with um, using symbols to represent uh, i think it was shampoo and hair rinse maybe or conditioner conditioner i think it was and and that's fine and well it just only goes to just those two products though and I, i think braille is would be a much more effective way of handling that and I, I get the argument that a lot of people don't know Braille, but you know I think that if you gave them the choice of having two identical bottles and one of them said shampoo and one of them said conditioner, you know they they could at least learn the first letter, you know the the S versus the C. They didn't want to learn everything uh, else. I'm not really the greatest advocate i'm a, I'm a uh, more of a, a tinkerer than anything so I would appreciate some help on this if uh, people really had some good useful ways of doing this that could be effective and you know we we always talk about legislation I don't I don't know that legislation is the best way I'm just throwing this out there for a discussion to see if we can move this forward in uh, some small way.
0: Always good to hear from you, Larry. And there'll be more from Larry in subsequent episodes of the podcast. I have to tell you, you might appreciate this. The geek in you will appreciate it, Larry. I've recently invested in a bunch of audio plugins, including the famous Isotope RX. They're now up to Isotope RX 8. And I've also invested in some very nice plugins from Waves and it's cool to tinker and do a bit of playing. Now, Isotope has a remarkable noise reduction plugin and I actually applied it in various levels of intensity to that audio and it was quite interesting how much you could filter out without artifacts. But then I realized we'd be losing too much of that lovely sort of hot summer Kentucky atmosphere there so I took all the noise reduction out. That's it's a lot of fun to play with, though. Regarding the labelling issue, it is such a simple, low-tech thing, isn't it? But it is so impactful, and I completely agree with you that we have to get this sorted. And by way of a parable or an anecdote or something like that, here in New Zealand many years ago, the Maori language, which is the language of our indigenous Maori people, was in serious danger of dying out. And there were a group of people who were considered radicals at the time because, let's face it, today's conventional thinking was yesterday's radical thinking. That is the way of the world. Uh, Some of these people said, we need radio stations. We need schools that teach people Māori. We need a renaissance. And a lot of the people who were in power, white people, of course, said, why? You know, Māori's on the way out. And, of course, that was a classic Catch-22 situation. Thankfully, Māori had their way, and we have schools and radio stations and TV networks speaking the Māori language, and it's a wonderful, evolving thing, and it's uniquely New Zealand, and it's very special. And I make that point because I think Braille is in a similar position. Sure, a minority of people who are blind read Braille at the moment. But if it was ubiquitous in the way that you are talking about with labels on cans, you know, you know, when you find a soup can and it's got soup written in Braille to throw the thing out at once, right? That's what you do. So it's really important to have those Braille labels and they do need to be Braille labels. I don't know about the legislation thing, because let's face it, we are such a small group that the business case for doing this doesn't stack up. I mean, even if you're the only product manufacturer that goes for the Braille labels, would you see an increase in revenue that justified it from a business point of view? And that's exactly why legislation has resulted in the benefits that we now enjoy with Apple and voiceover and many other things. I do wonder whether anybody's tried to use the ADA to suggest that it's not an undue hardship, it's not an unreasonable accommodation for brow labels to be put on packaging like this. So it's a really good discussion. And thanks also for your hints and tips about the kitchen. Very practical things that many of us, I think, just do and know, but articulating them for those getting started in the kitchen is a great contribution.
1: Hey, Jonathan, Mike May from Good Maps, Good Maps. Coincidentally, when you were releasing your wonderful interview with Larry Scootcon, Good Maps was releasing its first ever app called Good Maps Explore. I wanted to follow up on a couple things that Larry mentioned. Certainly the features and functions that are in nearby will find their way into the new Explore app, which is both indoor and outdoor navigation. As you know, I founded the first accessible GPS company in 1999, which evolved through the Braille Note and then eventually into the iPhone in the form of CNI GPS in the U.S. And there's many features that get added over 5, 10, 20 versions and releases. Good Maps is looking forward to hearing from users to take their input into account and to add features into the new Explore app from Good Maps, which is free. So people should check it out on the App Store, look up Good Maps Explore, download it, give us feedback, and we'll make this app very much a result of feedback from users, just like nearby Explorer was and uh, other apps that I've worked on over the years. One of the big breakthroughs that's come about since we were all using Bluetooth beacons over the last several years is something called camera based positioning. This is based on Apple's new AR kit. And the huge advantage is that rather than having to install hardware in the form of Bluetooth beacons in buildings, you don't have to install anything. The camera based positioning is quite accurate and it doesn't require any infrastructure development. So this will make it a lot more affordable and result in more venues having indoor navigation available. Good Maps also creates maps for companies. So between those two items, cheaper positioning and accurate indoor mapping, I think we'll see indoor navigation become much more viable. I was thrilled to hear your interview with Larry. We go way back to his beginning days in technology, and I've got huge respect for him and what he's done. And certainly his contribution to the accessible navigation field is near and dear to my heart. I also was thrilled to hear that Studio's being updated. I'm one of those users who hasn't gotten into Reaper yet, and I really like for my basic recording, like putting this particular piece for you together, Studio Recorder is great, and I'm looking forward to a new version. Take care and thanks. Or, as we like to say, it's better to travel, hopefully, than to arrive.
0: Well, indeed. Good luck with good maps, Explorer Mike. And for those who go fossicking around looking for it, as I did, apparently it is only available at this stage anyway in the U.S. App Store. So, Mosin good maps at Explorer, AM, But only in the U.S. App Store for now. If you are in the U.S. and you try it, let us know how it works out for you. Hi to everyone,
2: this is a message concerning Facebook. I joined Facebook a couple of years ago and ever since then, of course, I've been getting notifications of one kind or another to do something or other regarding friends or potential friends or whatever. And I got thoroughly sick of it. I really don't like services that Once you've joined, do not allow you to delete your account. I think that's horribly criminal, and such behavior should not be allowed to happen. But anyway, I went into my Facebook account, and under settings, I found notifications, and they were all switched on. There were about 10 to a dozen of them, and I switched them all off. And that solved my problem. I no longer hear from bleeping Facebook. End of rant.
0: Yes, well, Facebook can be pretty intrusive, can't it? And by default, it does send a lot of notifications that you may want to disable. But you most certainly can completely delete your Facebook account as well. If you've had second thoughts, if you decide you just want to be out of there. And I have done this before only to be coaxed back on because of work that I was doing. But I have deleted my Facebook account. And if you just do a Google search for deleting your Facebook account, because so many people have done this over the last couple of years, especially following the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the lack of reining in of false information being spread over Facebook, a lot of people have gone and you can do this. So it's probably going to be the first result or two that come up now that takes you to a delete page and you have two choices. You can either deactivate your Facebook account, which kind of leaves it in this temporary suspended animation stage, or you can completely delete it, from which they say there is no way back. Debbie Armstrong tells me COVID-19 is bad in California, but counties differ radically in the number of cases. My sister lives in a rural area that had only one case this year from an outside visitor, no less. I live in the heart of Silicon Valley, where managers at Apple, Twitter, Cisco, HP, Uber, Google, Facebook and Yahoo, not to mention the million other smaller supporting companies in the tech industry, are sending as many employees to work from home as possible. The college where I work says we're working from home until at least January. Our union negotiated unsuccessfully for the past few years for the right to allow us to work at home a few days a week. Suddenly, we're all forbidden to come on campus in a complete reversal of policy. I am so happy to have an extra four hours each day. Now that my commute from bedroom to office takes all of two seconds, I feel finally like I have achieved work-life balance with plenty of time to exercise, cook healthy meals, keep my house clean, and of course continue to do a dedicated job serving disabled college students. Regarding keyboards, I went to a surplus store going out of business and bought five Dell keyboards for a buck piece. This is a very standard PC keyboard with a numeric keypad. I was delighted to discover another at-large listener uses a GPD Pocket 2, a Windows computer the size of a large phone. I simply plug my little GPD Pocket into whatever keyboard is handy because I have them strewn around the house. If I spill coffee on any of these keyboards, since they each cost a dollar, it's no big deal. And best of all, I only have to memorize the layout of one keyboard – even though I own several identical ones. Surplus stores are readily available online. If you want a numeric keypad, just buy a cheap standard PC keyboard, and don't worry if your laptop has a crummy keyboard ever again. By the way, K1000 does run very nicely on the GPD Pocket, and with some tweaking, I got it working with the Pearl camera, perfect for visits to the public library. Regarding PC versus iPhone, I tell my students, who are mostly on limited income, that it's a computer they should have their funding source by. If that source is rehab or parents or a local service club, the computer is far more crucial. They can buy their own phone from their carrier with low monthly payments if they want, but you cannot do college work on a phone. It's difficult to keep your classwork organised with a phone. Most of my students who use iPhones exclusively tend to think their email inbox is a filing system and often are tapping through hundreds of emails to locate that one important announcement from a professor. On the other hand, for a retired person, I see no reason they won't be better off with just a phone. If you surf a bit, read some email and occasionally like to play with apps – Learning a computer is an extra and unnecessary complication. So if you just want Facebook and the web, forget the computer. If you need to be productive for work or school, forget the phone. Ooh, I'll stop reading and say that's quite a controversial one there, Debbie. I'm not sure I completely agree with that. <laughs> I can imagine being extremely productive with Ulysses or Drafts or anything like that. Um, there are some pretty capable iOS Word processors, filing system, task management type apps, calendars. I can see a student absolutely rocking their coursework with a phone. Debbie continues, When I give sighted people advice, I always suggest Chromebooks for people who don't need that much technology. They are super easy to reset and give to another user. Data is all handled in your Google account and not on the device. And it has a keyboard making typing much easier, which is why Chromebooks are so popular in schools. I also really like the Kindle Fire tablets for entertainment because it's so easy to listen to audiobooks from Audible and Bard, access Kindle Books and the Soup Drinker, plus use Netflix, YouTube and other video services with audio description enabled. And unlike your iPhone, it's easy to move data onto the device Or use an sd card for extra storage you can even move apps onto the sd card and it's a lot cheaper than a vr stream i also think these tablets are the best deal going for those who want to both visually see and hear a book read out loud if i lost my kindle it would be a little sad if i lost or broke my iphone it would be a tragedy so i tend to use the inexpensive kindle for all the frivolous stuff in my life. This way, I don't run down my phone's battery watching a movie, and I can always take an important call or fire up the GPS app when I'm lost. The iPhone cannot be beat for certain tasks, but I like to have a VR stream or a Kindle around to listen to podcasts or read Wikipedia. I'll pause there and say I view that really differently, Debbie, as I think I've said on this podcast before. The more devices you carry around, the more devices you have to charge and the more devices you have to potentially lose. And I guess it depends on what iPhone you have. If we're going back to the iPhone 6 or 7 or something like that, that has been used a lot, then clearly battery life isn't the best. But as I've said, even on this episode today, the iPhone 11 Pro Max has exceptional battery life. I mean, you can go for a very, very long time listening to audio books with the screen off and barely make a dent in the battery life. So I think it is important that the advice we give takes into account today's technology and battery life on iPhones these days really is not a problem at all, even if you're working them quite hard. And I mean, really, how far are we from a charger in many cases, uh, even if battery life were a problem? The email continues regarding GPS apps. I find it handy to run two simultaneously. This works especially well on public or paratransit when I want to know what I'm passing and don't need to concentrate on orientation. It's also great if I'm learning a route and moving slowly. I typically run Blind Square and Nearby Explorer together, giving each a different announcement voice, Because they are using the phone's location services, rather than a hardware GPS, it doesn't slow down the phone or cause any software conflicts, which could happen with systems that use an external GPS. Regarding O&M skills, I think our community needs to see them more like talents. Just as we all cannot make music like Stevie Wonder or swim like Olympic athletes, We all don't have super blink O&M skills, through no fault of our own. I used to have superb O&M skills when I was young, and I believed blind people who didn't have them were lazy. Today, with a bad knee, some hearing loss, and the slowing of reflexes due to aging, my O&M skills have suffered, and I do ask for help more frequently. I particularly believe the hormone changes that occur with menopause affect one's spatial ability more than is commonly believed. Even sighted women find after menopause that it's more difficult to remember driving directions or read maps. I find that younger sighted women are more confident drivers, especially when following a route is required, And I believe menopause takes a toll on the ability of blind women to navigate as pedestrians as well. On the other hand, my personal travel skills are excellent. I know how to get information out of strangers, and I'm not at all afraid to go to unfamiliar areas. Though I have declined physically as I age, I psychologically have way more confidence than I did when I was young. Last year, wandering around Chicago's O'Hare Airport with only the Seeing AI app to help locate my gate, I wasn't at all worried about navigation. I did have a three hour layover, so I had plenty of time, but I would have found the airport daunting when I was younger. Gino J is in touch on Twitter and he says he's got an old iPhone. He's looking at updating. See, if you just hang on a little bit longer, Gino, you could have a whole new iPhone to update to, couldn't you? But he wants to know what's the difference between the iPhone XR, the iPhone 11, and the iPhone SE second generation. Well, the iPhone XR has an older processor. So if you have the budget for a newer phone, then you might notice a bit of a performance improvement over the XR. The major difference between the iPhone 11 and the iPhone SE 2nd generation relates to cameras. The processor is actually the same. So if you don't care about high-end photography, then you may like to go for the iPhone SE 2nd generation, which many blind people are happy with. And one of the things that is attracting some blind people to it is that some have struggled with Face ID. And, of course, the iPhone SE 2 has Touch ID. And even if you don't usually struggle with Face ID, the whole face mask thing has made it a bit more of a nuisance because sometimes you have to train Face ID a second time if you want to unlock your phone when you're wearing a mask. So some people have longed for the days of the good old Touch ID. Now, the iPhone 11 Pro Max has phenomenal battery life. That's one thing to consider if you can spring for an iPhone 11 Pro Max. (laughs) I use it a lot for browse screen input, of course, but I'm just so glad to have it because of the battery life. It is just incredible. It is a larger phone, though, and that does put some people off. So for many people, the iPhone SE second generation hits the sweet spot in terms of a combination of processor power and features and value for money.
4: Hey, Jonathan, and hey, every listener of... Mosin at large, this is Marco from Germany calling in, so to speak. I am thoroughly enjoying the latest episodes of the podcast, especially the nostalgia bits of uh, technology and software. My God, how long have I not used Winamp on Windows? I usually listen to my music uh, on my iPhone or iPad nowadays and uh, don't use the Windows PC or the Mac at all for that. I do produce audio on Windows, but uh, I don't listen to music on the PC at all. So um, this is, wow, something. Um, I wanted to touch on some points of the last episode, uh, especially the JAWS 3.2 bit. I was there when JAWS 3.2 came out in 1998 And that was the first version that had eloquence, the first version of eloquence that sounded a bit different from the way we have eloquence nowadays, which hasn't changed that much since basically 1999. But JAWS 3.2 came out in 1998. It was the first version that was published on a CD. And it was—it came in this jewel case where there was one CD and one diskette, and the diskette had the authorization on it. You know, the one that you moved onto your computer and could also move back. And you had three authorizations that you could use, similar to the ILM authorizations nowadays, where you also have three ones that you can use. But uh, Jaws three point two was the first version that was available with Eloquence. And uh, my God, this was a game changer. Suddenly, you could install Jaws on any computer that had a sound card and ran Windows ninety-five plus. Incidentally, it was also the first version that had a forty-minute demo. I don't think the previous versions had that. I think Jaws three point two had that. I remember on trade shows that year, we had two sets of jewel cases: one that had only forty-minute demo version of Jaws on and the other one that had uh 60-day demos. And we had a limited supply of the latter, but a big supply of, of the former. And we gave them out like crazy to for people to try JAWS. And we could tell them, hey, just install it on your computer. If your computer has a sound card, it can run JAWS. You don't need a hardware synthesizer. And that was truly awesome. And speaking of... Hardware synthesizers, because I am in Germany and my native tongue is actually German, I had to use a different hardware synthesizer in my early days, and I actually used two. The first one was a true like external box that you could connect either via serial or parallel ports. Yes, you could uh, also connect that via the printer port. And that was the Apollo 1 from Dolphin. And it came with HAL 4.6, I think. And then I upgraded that like two or three years later to an Apollo 2, which had indexing, which meant that it could use something like SayAll. And that is the synthesizer that I used my first version of JAWS 1.20 with. Then I had a notebook and that had a Keynote PCM CIA card in it. And that had this connector that ended in a 3.5 millimeter headphone jack where you could connect headphones or a speaker. And then you could get your speech. And that was, you know, that only ran in Windows 3.1 or later. But that that notebook actually wasn't able to run Windows 95. So it ran with Windows 3.1. And I didn't have a DOS screen reader that could actually talk to this thing. So the only screen reader that could talk to it via the Windows driver was JAWS. This was like... Really, really my first experience. And that one also had my very first Braille display, a HandyTech Modular 44. Yes, that also ran JAWS and it uh, ran in DOS with a software called Braille Window Professional. That was totally customizable, a really awesome piece of software that powered that Braille display and uh, it connected via serial port. So um, no hardware port that you know mirrored the graphics card or something like earlier Braille displays did.
0: Lovely to hear from you, Marco. I had forgotten all about indexing. Oh, yes, indexing was the thing. And the difference was pretty incredible. It was staggering because if you had a synthesizer that didn't support indexing and you stopped to say all, oh, you could just land in la-la land. I mean, there would be no guarantee where you might end up. But then... You'd get a synthesizer with indexing, you'd tap that control key, and wow, you were right on the word at which you stopped. Miraculous is what it was. Luis also confirms in sunny Colombia, he says, Hi Jonathan, I think I have the answer to your question. Eloquence was incorporated into JAWS in July of 1998, version 3.2. I remember this date very well because it was the time when I made the transition from DOS to Windows 95. In my case, this was a milestone in my relationship to computers. I remember that I was very afraid to switch to Windows, and it took me a couple of years to do it. A similar situation happened to me when I switched to the iPhone. It took me a couple of years as well. Yeah, sometimes it takes a while for people to adapt, Some people kind of react to this stuff naturally and adapt and other people, it's a struggle and they persist with it and they have success eventually and more power to them because that's really impressive. But certainly I remember when Windows 3.1 was starting to become more and more of a thing. And I think I talk about this with Glenn Gordon in the In the Arena series, my life story that he did with me. We really thought... That we were going to be losing a lot of the gains that we had made in the DOS era. There was a lot of fear around in those early stages. And as we continue to do the reminiscing, boop boop
3: boop 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 boop.
0: Boo. Oh, um, Debbie Armstrong says people who want to reminisce with old talking clocks need to install Steve's talking clock. I had forgotten all about that. I remember when it came out. That was quite a long time ago. So good to know it's still around. You can go to clock. steve dash audio. net to find it. clock. steve dash audio. net. Debbie says I've attached a few favourite alarm sounds. All right, let's give them a twirl. So pick up that clock package and have fun. That Steve's Talking Clock. Oh, but wait, it might not be that easy. As I speak, as I speak, the Twitter is lighting up with people saying we're trying to find the Steve's Talking Clock. And it doesn't appear to be where Debbie says it is. Yes, it has been a while. Since I heard of this program, so it could be that it no longer exists. But if anybody has a URL for Steve's Talking Clock, that works. By all means, send it in, because there seems to be quite a bit of interest based on the way that my Twitter has sprung to life when people have gone to look and can't find it. Marco talking about eloquence sounding different in the early days took me on a bit of a tangent, and I suddenly remembered Dr. Jaws. Does anybody remember Dr. Jaws? Where there are all sorts of things that Dr. Jaws tried to look for so you could have a smooth install. You know, we've talked in the last couple of weeks about interrupt conflict and various things, and Dr. Jaws tried to be helpful. Does anybody also remember, on the very first edition of Moan Menu we ran a thing that Patrick Padu put together, I guess uh, slightly tongue in cheek because he might have been having some frustration with the latest Jaws beta at the time. And uh, Patrick would have been a young guy, 14 or 15, when he put this together.
9: Welcome to the JAWS for Windows patch setup program.
6: Please relax while Dr. JAWS examines your system. This may take a couple of minutes. Dr. JAWS, please wait. Dr. Jaws. Dr. Jaws is diagnosing your system. Dr. Jaws has found settings for JFW which you have spent years and years customizing for each of your applications. Dr. Jaws has no respect for you nor your settings files. Dr. Jaws is now permanently deleting all of your JFW settings files. Please wait. Dr. Jaws found errors with JFW. Too bad. Dr. Jaws will not fix them. Dr. Jaws, this program has performed an illegal operation and will be shut down. If the problem persists, contact the program vendor. Close button. Thank you for installing the JFW update patch. No, you're screwed. You are a loser. Ha ha ha
2: ha ha. Hey, Jonathan. This is Nikki from Bismarck, North Dakota. I just want to add my comments about Zoom calls. What drives me absolutely nuts is when <clears throat> I'm on a Zoom call and there is so much racket, and noise in the background that you just can't enjoy the
0: meeting or whatever's going on. Thanks, Mickey. Good to hear from you in Bismarck, North Dakota. It's certainly frustrating, isn't it? And this is not a new thing either. Many of us have been doing audio conferences for a very long time now. So you'd think we'd get used to the fact that when you're not talking, it's a good idea to mute yourself and keep the line clear. Although it is also a problem on standard audio telephone conferences from days of yore as well. But it's good advice. If you are getting into a Zoom call, make sure that you know how to mute your audio on the particular device that you are using. And if you're hosting a Zoom call, you can bring up the participants window and mute people if you find that there's too much noise going on. And while we're on the subject of Zoom, some very good news coming through from them this week with the slew of updates that they've released. I think they're up to 5.2-ish in their version numbering. And if you use a PC or a Mac with Zoom, they have expanded the original sound mode considerably. You can have echo cancellation on while you're using original sound if you want to, which is likely to degrade the sound quality. So you really want to try and avoid that if you can. But also, original sound has the capacity now to go up to 96 kbps, 48 kHz mono, or 192 kbps, 48 kilohertz stereo. So if you're using this to send music or high-quality broadcasts, perhaps you're being interviewed for radio or a podcast, This is absolutely fantastic. If you have the right gear, like a good quality microphone or you're working through an audio interface, this really makes Zoom a lot more viable. I have stopped using Zoom for podcast recording a long time ago because there are much better, higher quality alternatives. But obviously, this puts Zoom back into contention.
10: Hey, Jonathan, Nick Zamorelli here. My contribution for today has to do with uh, Cortana. I'm trying to set up my Gmail so that I can send an email from either one of my laptops using Cortana. Now, there are a couple of different layers to this problem. The first has to do with JAWS. Uh, JAWS is not working well in this dialog box. I spoke with Freedom Scientific, and they seem to think that JAWS, uh, Microsoft is not properly encoded with JAWS, to work with uh, this particular uh, setup. Because when I go to hit next on any of the buttons, uh, either by pressing the enter key or the space bar, nothing happens. So they suggested that I get in touch with the Microsoft Disability Answer Center. I spent some time on the phone today with them. They were very helpful. I allowed them to take control of my computer and they did what they needed to do. But that's still a problem. The other issue that I'm having is when the Microsoft Disability Help Desk person got to the what was supposed to be the final step, which was to hit the Agree button to link my Gmail account with my Microsoft account, nothing happened, as was the case with me. Uh, by the way, I ended up having to use my touchscreen to, to make these things happen because, as I said, the Enter key or the space bar... Uh, neither one of those things were working. When the woman on the other end of the phone said that nothing was working on her end either, she said that it was because I didn't have the Gmail desktop app. So I did some searching on that. I found something called Easy Mail, which is supposed to be for Gmail. I haven't been able to find a download link for it yet. What do you think of this? I mean, the idea is that I'm trying... It just makes perfect sense that if I've got Cortana on here, that I should be able to use it to send an email whenever I want. And I don't want to have to use Hotmail.
0: Sounds fair enough to me, Nick. Unfortunately, this is something I can't help at all with because it wasn't until very recently that Cortana was available in New Zealand at all. It took a very long time to get here. And I guess my understanding has been that... Microsoft's going a bit lukewarm on Cortana and embracing other assistants instead. So I have spent zero time with Cortana, and I guess you've piqued my interest. But if others have got this to work, and it does seem like a very commonplace scenario, a lot of people use Gmail and they want to be able to send mail with it using Cortana. If anyone has the magic trick, let us know. Good to know that you had a good experience with the Disability Answer Desk. In my experience, they are fantastic in terms of sticking with you. They have been trained on accessibility issues, so they don't say silly things like, do you see such and such on the screen or click here? They're really onto it. Pete is in touch and says, Hi, I am looking to start learning Braille and have some questions. As someone in their early 50s who has never read Braille... What are my chances of being successful? I would like to use Braille as an alternative way to read books rather than relying on TTS. What is the best way to learn independently? I plan to use the RNIB Fingerprint Grade 2 course. I can give time someone recommended short frequent periods of 15 minutes But if I progress, when do you suggest I buy something like a braille display as I would prefer not to throw lots of money at this until I can see it will work? For context, I have always been visually impaired, around 10% vision in my right eye only, but never learned braille as I could always read print down to very small sizes. My reading speed was, however, pretty slow. I sometimes miss reading with no noise, sitting in the garden with a good book, and it is at times like that I'd like to have an alternative. It is possible that I might get some vision back as I had a retinal detachment after a number of eye operations at the end of 2019. I currently have a silicon oil bubble in my eye keeping the retina flat, and this stops me focusing. When this comes out, If it comes out, I may be able to see some print again, but having done the conversion to screen readers, etc., I can see some improved efficiency in working sightless. I also like the idea that if something else goes wrong, it will not be the disaster it might once have been. I'd value your opinion and that of your listeners. Congratulations on giving this some thought, Pete. It's a big step for sure. And I have seen people with low vision struggle along taking a long time to read the screen visually or read a piece of paper visually when an alternative technique would get the job done much more efficiently and with a lot less strain, of course. I'm hoping that those who have current knowledge of the rehab field, particularly in the UK where you are from, clearly, might be able to chime in on this because I've been blind since birth. I learned Braille from the age of five, and it's a priceless gift that I was given. But I have met adults who have learned Braille, sometimes through correspondence courses. I know that Hadley has a Braille course that people talk very highly of, and some people benefit from one-on-one Braille instruction. You've set yourself an ambitious target there. Many people have learned Braille for things like labeling items, and that's very useful, for you to read a book is going to take some work, but I do believe you will improve with time if you're dedicated to the cause. So I hope others might contribute either with their experiences of learning braille in adulthood, what worked for them, any pitfalls that you should be aware of, and perhaps there are people in the rehab system, rehab instructors, who can give us some information about best practice in 2020. But whatever, I wish you all the very best with your braille reading, Pete. As I say... It is a priceless gift.
9: Hi, I'm Dimit Veld from the Netherlands, and I had the Envision glasses for a test drive today. As many listeners know, Envision is a Dutch company that has had an app for a long time which can read texts, recognize faces, and find objects and describe scenes. And they are releasing the Envision Glasses, which is Google Glass Enterprise running the same app. I think Envision is already the best OCR app for your iPhone right now. And I was even more impressed with the text-reading performance of the Envision Glasses. You can photograph and read a document, which is pretty fast and accurate... And also, it has an instant reading feature, like the Envision app itself, which means that any text which comes within view of the camera is being read, and particularly this instant reading feature is very impressive. I've tried it on various scans and bottles and computer parts. If the text is clear, it's being read very well. Unfortunately, in many cases, it's not that perfect because the text is not clear or very tabular or maybe the lighting conditions are not perfect. But for example, I had a bottle of wine and it was far from perfect, but I gathered that it was a Dornfelder grape with 13.5% alcohol. Well, then I know a lot more than I would know just by touching the bottle. One wine bottle is exactly like another. What impressed me even more is the performance in our local shopping center. It actually read all the signs which were above store doors and I really got an impression what they were actually selling in those stores. It could read some traffic signs, corona instructions, really impressive and all of it was very snappy and everything worked from the glasses without ever having to touch the glasses which makes it really convenient for use when out and about. Another feature many people will like is the ability to call a friend and that friend can then see your camera image. So it's like Ira. Until now you can only call your friends, but I assume that it could be developed further. There are what I would consider experimental features right now. Face recognition, object recognition and detection and scene description, although those features are already working and might have some use cases, they still have a lot of glitches in the underlying technology and also the user interface around it will need more development. But that's not surprising considering that this is very cutting edge technology by any standard and that we're talking about a very early iteration of the Envision Glasses product. I've tried a lot of related products and already at this beta stage, the performance of Envision glasses exceeds anything I've experienced so far. So overall, I'm very impressed and it's definitely a product worth considering. You can find more information at letsenvision.com.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much for sharing that, Tim. That does indeed sound exciting and we'll keep track of what's happening there with Envision. And so often people tell me this, that they believe that Envision is doing a better job than anything else on their iPhone for OCR. I'm not feeling the love as much, but it makes me every time I hear this on this show and other people who talk to me, It makes me want to keep trying because I find that the best thing that I have on my phone at the moment that I get the best results from appears to be Voice Dream scanner for scanning a document because I really like the concept of the tone that gets louder, a continuous tone that gets louder until you can't get it any louder. And then, you know, to hold the camera steady and it takes a picture. And I normally get stunning results with that. I find that for short text, you know, reading on the fly, I seem to get better results with seeing AI than Envision. But I kind of feel like I must be holding it wrong or something because so many people do say that they're having really amazing results with Envision. And I do have the full package. I signed up when they had a special deal on the lifetime subscription. So I'll keep trying. I'll keep playing with this stuff. But it sounds like they're doing some phenomenal, innovative stuff. And that's tremendous. And I have reached out to the Envision folks, and we'll be speaking, or being well, with somebody from Envision AI next week on Mosin at Large. So we'll talk about these glasses, we'll talk about their app and all the steady progress that they're making there. And if there is anything in particular you would like me to ask Envision, then by all means be in touch, let me know. We'll do our best to incorporate as many of your questions as possible.